0: Good morning, everybody. As you heard, I am not Chris. (laughs) Chris is uh, gone uh, this week. He is actually preaching at Frisco Bible Church uh, um, this morning and finishing up a a topical series there. Um, And so we can be praying for him, especially because he left behind his glasses. And so we already had the thought, if I could just get up here and wonder how many of the people we could just fool and not even know that he's gone. But then I now get what Chris talked about the other week. That's clear. I have no idea what it says now, so I won't. I'll take them off. We're going to be continuing our study uh, in First Peter, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn them on. You can navigate over there. You can open them up uh, and find the letter. You know, we've spent quite a lot of time. Um, now already leading up uh, to just get into um, these first kind of nine verses. And Chris told me, he was like, you know, Paul, you're free to do whatever you want with it and go as long as you can. Uh, And I got to be honest with you, I was tempted in my pride to want to cover nine verses this morning, just to say, see what I did in one week takes you like seven weeks. And But then, alas, I had to swallow my own pride because here I was preparing such a sermon and quickly realizing, no, I'm not going to get to nine. I'm going to be lucky to get six. And then, even at six, the same problem he runs into every week um, is by the time I got through the first two verses, I had written like three quarters of the sermon. And so, again... Here we are kind of just diving in uh, to the story and picking it up. But what we're doing is we're actually kind of going to be finishing one section of thought and making a transition into another section of thought. This is going to be kind of part three of what we've already considered. And now we're going to be moving into a new section. Uh, and it's interesting, this part that we're moving into, uh, I actually had an experience this week that uh, highlighted this that I probably would not have thought of if, uh, if it wasn't for already considering this passage. But I, I know this will relate to some of y'all because some men uh, in particular, but then I know some, some just the natural dispositions of different people, uh, is for me, when my wife goes to the grocery store and then she tells me that all the groceries are in the trunk and I can help bring them in, I'm one of these guys. Even to my detriment, I'm always kind of one of the ones that is it's like, I want to make one trip, and even if that means precariously balancing things, that's what I'm going to do. And so I was walking this week uh, from one building to the next, actually going to change a light switch, and I had the light switch under my armpit. I had my hot tea in my hand. I had my keys ready because I was ready to swipe at the door when I got in there, because when you forget that part and your hands are full, it looks real weird when you're just trying to wave your leg at the door. And so I had my keys ready. I thought I was well-prepared. I had in one hand, you know, my my tool bag, and then I had my drill, and I was walking up there. And the campus was full. We had over 100 city staff from Pine Cove who did training here. We had Camp Gladiator out there. I think there was royal family and track training going on. Uh, There was people all over the place. And as I was walking in between buildings, I, I... slipped up, and in watching my tea, I let go of my keys, and my keys as they were falling to the ground, I then swiftly kicked them for whatever reason, I kicked them, and they went back up into the air, and it was like the stars aligned, I couldn't catch them again with my tea hand, and so I stabbed them, and caught them on my drill, and then was able to walk over and open up the door, I share this Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, But when I had that moment, when I just realized and it dawned on me, I did all of that, what do you think I did next? I looked around. I was like, who saw that? All you people out here somebody had to have seen that just miraculous occurrence. And it was almost like I was searching for a witness to validate what experience. I wanted to share that with somebody. Even again, when I try to like load up all too many things and I end up tripping and stumbling and dropping it, you know, what do you do even then at those moments? You kind of want to look around and see like, anybody see that? Because even in me falling, I kind of just want somebody to be there to laugh at me with me, right? Like I want to share that witness so that it can be that affirmation of what actually happened. And that's where exactly what Peter does here is Peter's moving in. He's been continuing this whole statement, these series of statements, this argument that is presenting, namely the salvation we have in God, a salvation that comes from grace. And he's building upon how this salvation of grace is so big and so extensible. It is one that we can, in the first couple of, verses he establishes we can truly hope in, and then not only with our hope in it, now we can even, it's so great... We can make do with this present sufferings and trials because we have a future hope that this is the salvation that he's proclaiming. And so to kind of capstone that, to those, reiterate those two um, purposes and to put a cap on it, he provides us with some witnesses. And it's really fascinating um, with what he, how he does it. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read the whole swath of uh, the section, all six verses that we're going to consider this morning, and then we'll go back through in normal fashion and try to break them down. And out of reverence for God's word and really probably just to remind ourselves easily of the physical thing we can accomplish, but the thing we're desperate for him to, to spiritually accomplish, which is the rising up uh, in, in reverency to his word. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read this passage. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hear the very words of God, and thanks be to him. Y'all may be seated. Again, this isn't, a, this isn't the third point bringing a new point into uh, Peter's argument. And it all starts kind of with this hinge phrase, again, concerning the salvation. So everything he's been saying about salvation up until this point, uh, we need to be realizing is back into picture here with this introduction of some witnesses. And the witness we're introdu- introduced to first are these prophets. These first prophets stand as a witness to our salvation. Um, it, it makes sense uh, really again this is what Chris talked about a couple weeks ago with the tapestry side of thing as Peter is convincing us of how blessed we are with this grace and salvation um, he points to the, the work of these faithful prophets who they themselves didn't have the whole complete picture they had all the pieces of the puzzle but then we because of Jesus and his revelation through the New Testament have all of the prophecies then fulfilled it's kind of like that um, he used a example of a tapestry, looking at the threads from the back and then the revealed picture on the front, I tend to always go with the puzzle mentality. It's like they had all the bright puzzle pieces. They knew all the different things and that alone, all those pieces were enough to tell them about a messiah. And so they knew all the pieces, they knew that it was pointing to a Messiah, they just didn't know that it was going to be fulfilled specifically in Jesus, but we have the luxury of having those, all those puzzle pieces put together and we have Jesus revealed to us. And so what, what, what the prophet's whole goal and aim is, is to present the pieces that they know towards a Messiah and then what we have in the blessed state of being after the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is we have how all of those puzzle pieces fit together and point again to this Messiah. It makes sense um, why Jesus, in his own words in Matthew thirteen sixteen through 17 says this, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We should be blessed by this salvation that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Um, we should be blessed by this, uh, the, what they knew only in part we now get to know in whole. And again, if that's not a convincing enough, again, statement for us, Peter continues to talk about what the role of these prophets was. Look down in verse 10. Because they say, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was given, that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully. So this is, this is the prophet's role. They search and inquire carefully, uh, and we're going to see to whose benefit and to what aim. Now, that's out of the ESV. The NASB states, made careful searches and inquiries. And I actually like the Christian Standard Bible that actually phrases it with this idea of making inquiries. It says, they searched and carefully investigated. And we saw this. This is so great that, again, we get to come off of our study of Daniel, right? Because we saw Daniel searching and pouring over what was revealed to him, pouring over these details, pointing at a Messiah. And yet, even at that, there was a revelation to him that he knew what he saw was only in part. He saw that there was a Messiah and more than enough for him to put faith in too. But then we get to see all the revelation of how that plays out with, again, the New, New Testament. And so again, these prophets are investigating this Messiah. They strove to get it, and then their work was affirmed as then all their prophecies had come to light. So continuing in verse 11, what was this inquiry kind of looking like? They, in, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. And this is again in, in entirely uh, kind of helpful for us and a helpful misnomer that a lot of times I hear in various places when I um, go and get to discuss God's word. Uh, because I, I hear this sometimes slipping montage of people that say, well, that's the Old Testament. I don't really need the Old Testament. That's the incomplete Testament. I have the New Testament. So that's what I read. That's what I study. I read the complete one, not the incomplete Old Testament. And again, we don't, we don't have that argument here. We don't get that argument from Peter's word. It isn't that the Old Testament is insufficient, thus the New Testament had to come to be sufficient. no. What Peter's pointing out is that the prophets of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament exists, is every time you enter into it, you should be going from a framework of mind that is pointing everything you read towards a future Messiah. The entirety of the Old Testament was pointing towards a future Messiah. Then we get the Gospels and the subsequent letters after that in the New Testament that everything, the framework you should be reading when you read those is pointing back to a Messiah, to Jesus. And so essentially the whole narrative of Scripture is accomplishing the same thing. Whether it's the old pointing forward or the new pointing back, everything hinges on this salvation that is offered by grace from our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and was resurrected the third day. This is the entirety of the message, and both new and old were sufficient in accomplishing that purpose. We have to do that because if we say that the Old Testament is insufficient, then we would not be able to just blame the authors. We can't just blame the prophets. We'd have to blame the revealer. And this is fascinating, what Peter says, is who is this revealer? The revealer here is, in fact, the Spirit of Christ. Now, notice the Spirit is actually capitalized, that this is the Spirit and this is the Christ. This is a Trinitarian statement um, of two of the persons of the Godhead, Uh, fitting that this is the first uh, Sunday after Pentecost, which is known as Trinitarian Sunday, that we get to dive into this nuance because the revealer of who Christ is as Messiah, his suffering and his glorification was attested to by himself, the Spirit of Christ. This, this phrase is actually only used once else in our New Testament, and that's in Romans 8, 9. And in both passages, there's a dual sense that this is not only hearkening the fact that the Spirit comes from Christ, that the Holy Spirit himself comes from Christ, but also that the Holy Spirit serves as a witness to Christ. That This is the unique thing that, again, only a God who is three in one person can do, and that is testify to himself. You have the one who stands who says he's holy, and you have the other one who can stand and say he's holy only himself. Thus, only this is what he's accomplishing. So this spirit of Christ is the one that is revealing to the prophets about himself, the Messiah. And then what does he say? He says he predicted his suffering and glory. This was God's plan all along. Uh, It is an amazing foundation of Peter's theology that we're going to run into again and again uh, throughout the rest of this book. Is that his suffering, the state of the suffering Messiah, becomes a cornerstone on which he builds so many of these concepts as he has extended this grace of salvation to us. One of the uh, commentators that I read, a guy named Oscar Cullman, put it like this, had an interesting note about Peter's own conclusion in these things. He said, He, speaking of Peter, who wanted to hear nothing of it, speaking of Christ's suffering, during the lifetime of Jesus, it's all right, this is fascinating, Mark 8 or Matthew 16, um, when they're talking about uh, when Jesus has revealed to his disciples that he is going to go and die, what does Peter do? He walks up and he rebukes Christ. And he says, no, 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 you're not going to suffer. You're not going to do these things. And, and Christ then rebukes Peter in that moment for missing it so, again, look at this. It's it's so fascinating. Peter, who wanted to hear nothing of Christ's suffering during the lifetime of Jesus, now makes Jesus' suffering and death the very center of his explanation of Jesus' earthly work. And so, what Peter is establishing here, again, is this reinforcement of the message we've run into. That though this present time there are sufferings, and there are trials, and there are real sufferings, and there are real trials— Talk to people. See the brokenness of our world. But though even that, they pale in comparison with the glory that is to be revealed. This was true and prophesied about Jesus, that he was to, as Messiah, going to suffer and yet be glorified. And what Peter is saying, so then, of course, believer, you who's extended this participation in God's work would be doing the same work. You may suffer But you are also, in the same way you expect suffering, are also supposed to expect glory. Why? Because of the grace given to you in salvation. Again, this is Jesus' own witness to himself um, that that he accomplishes through the prophets, and he doesn't do it just for the prophets. But this is a fascinating verse in here, that he does it for you. Look back down, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, And things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. And again, as does not miss the source, where is it coming from? The Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This is the crazy thing is that the prophets through Jesus' revelation pointed forward to this Messiah. And apparently that pointing forward was not just for their faith alone, but was also for you. They were striving diligently. They were serving to put together these mysteries. They were making these prophecies as revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ. Why? For your benefit. This is the great cornerstone we get to stand on. This is the great assuredness of our faith that we have recorded in Scripture. As we have these prophecies of the Old Testament, years and years, hundreds of years before Christ, all being made about Christ, that we see the fulfillment of them in the New Testament, uh, and that we get to stand assured there's somewhere argue about the numbers, but there's probably somewhere around the 50 ish ballpark um, about specific prophecies about Jesus' birth alone that are fulfilled. Um, and Joshua Dow's got a great video you can look up where he speaks to um, probably about 300 prophecies in total in the Old Testament now revealed uh, and come true in the New Testament. I mean, even down to the smallest of details, things like. Micah 5.2. This is this is talking about the birthplace of the Messiah. In Micah 5.2 it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the days of old, from the old, from the ancient days. So this was Micah in his day communicating something that was true, but wasn't just for him. And why do we know it's not just for him? Because we run into it again for us. Now we are in Micah 5.2. Now we'll be in Matthew 2.5. And here in, t- in chapter 2 of Matthew, Herod's come forth and he's brought all the high priests and the scribes and he asks them, where is this Messiah to be born? So they consult the scriptures. And what do they come up with? Well, they then say, well, it's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And they cite Micah. Micah writes it in Micah in, an, in a version of, a, of explain, explanation that he knew that was limited and we get it fulfilled in Matthew in a fullness of form that we can count as assured. And that's just one. We could spend the rest of the time going over the 299 other ones to see how God had this story all along. This was all about his work, all about what he was to accomplish, and all about a grace given to you to be able to participate in that. Peter, as a side note, will account from uh, a couple other prophets in this book, um, from Psalms, um, from Hosea, from Isaiah. He cites the fulfillment of those prophecies. And this kind of makes sense then why Jesus, in Luke 24, has kind of what for many times, a long time, felt like a strange rebuke. Because over in Luke 24, Jesus has died, um, and it's before... Uh, it's before all the disciples have realized his resurrection and he starts making these appearances. And one of those is to a group of disciples um, that's on their way on this road to Emmaus and they're walking along. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and veils his form, whatever that means. And so that they did not recognize who he was at first. Uh, And they ask them, Jesus asks them about what's going on and they explain all about Jesus as the Messiah that they thought he was, but they saw him die and so now they don't know what to do. They think he was the Messiah, but his death now means he can't be the Messiah. And Jesus has this rebuke for them in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he began what's well, not recorded for us, but I assume the greatest Sunday school lesson of all time because Jesus is teaching it. He goes through and he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets all of these scriptures and points to himself. And so this is the blessing that we get to stand on. And this is very similar to Peter's message, right? If you understand the prophets, then you have to understand Jesus' suffering and his subsequent glory. Both those things have to be come together because it was all part of the plan All along. And essentially, Peter's point is this. He's saying, like the prophets knew Jesus would suffer and that he was glorified, the prophets were affirmed because Jesus suffered and then he glorified. So then, you, good Christian, in these trials of suffering that seem really big, how could you match that against a weight that would be bigger? Well, his glorification is the same glorification he promises to you. So take comfort in the grace of salvation that will ultimately lead to your glorification. This is Peter's mindset. This is what he presents, and this is what we see here. And maybe just like the prophets, we sit in an age where we don't know how that's going to happen. We, we, just like the prophets, get to have a certainty that it does going to happen because it was revealed to us as being so. But then there's this fascinating second witness that's also thrown in there, or third witness that's thrown in there. When We got the prophets. We got the uh, spirit of Christ who was revealing those truths and witnessing to himself. And then at the end here, we kind of get this small mention that's really just truly fascinating um, of another of the, at least of the witnesses to affirm this, is the angels. Look down in uh, the middle of verse 12 again. We'll pick up there. And these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Fascinating. What does it mean? I'm not sure. But let's continue this thought a little bit. It isn't this, what this is clear is the language is not here that this is something angels long to see but can't see. More, this is something of saying angels can see this and they're expectant to see this. This is what it is, longing to see something that has worked out. And what are they longing to see as it's revealed here? Apparently, angels themselves long to see our salvation played out for the glory of God. This is what angels themselves are desperate to see is they want to see God glorified through our salvation. And it's a fascinating thing because angels, these angels, aren't participating in the story of redemption in the same way that we are, right? Because angels, those that didn't fall, still stand in their perfect bodies, They have no need for redemption. They're almost outside of the frame here. In fact, a a hymn writer, Johnson Oatman, um, back for the 1900s, wrote and penned a song to express something very similar. The song's called Holy, Holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joys. Of what our salvation brings. And I think this is it, is they, Peter's point is even these angels who aren't even a part of this redemptive story in the sense of they themselves needing to be redeemed, these angels look down and long for the work of our salvation. So, how much more then should we, should I, see the vast greatness of the grace demonstrated to me in salvation that even angels want to long for it, right? Because we may pick up the newspaper and we may read a story about a court case where some innocent person was now uh, alleviated off the trial and was found not guilty. And we may say, that's a happy story. I'm glad I read that over my Wheaties this morning. Let's go on with our day. But that's us reading a story we're not a part of. Think of it more as you're the one sitting in front of the judge. It's your innocence or your guilt that's what's on the line. And when that news, when you learn the news of that, that it is your innocence that is being, per, being declared, how much more does that weigh to you than the guy who's just reading about it in the newspaper? Right. And I think this is what Peter points to these angels is we're supposed to see how much more we should value the experience that we have of grace and salvation, even when the angels are longing to see it. Because there's a lot of things that we're not sure about what the role of angels are, what they do. Um, a lot of the, I mean, well, we, we studied Daniel, and we saw these angels at work in ways that we can't fathom or understand. But one of all the things of what angels at least do, one thing I can say that they are doing, is that they are looking down on the church this morning. They're looking down on South Spring Baptist Church. They're looking down on Frisco Bible Church. They're looking down anywhere that the gospel is being presented and the Holy Spirit is illuminating and they're on their tiptoes straining to see who will come to faith in the Lord. This is the angel's excitement. And I will say I won't go any further without at least stopping and saying, if this is you in your state that you stop and realize and think. And you're like, well, when I really stop to think about it, I don't know if I have ever accepted this free gift of grace. This grace of salvation that Peter's just proclaiming, I don't know if I've confessed my sin and asked him to take that and do what only he can do, which is forgive me and to give me grace. And if if that's you this morning, I urge you, don't let today pass without putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The angels are longing to see you do that and God will be glorified if you will give your life to him. But Peter doesn't end there but we've only gone two verses, and I'm three-quarters of the way through the sermon. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pick up, because I do find what's fascinating is we have all this build-up in Peter. Here we are, we're at 13 verses in, and something interesting occurs here is not once, and this next verse is the first time ever, because in 13 verses, not once does Peter give us a command to do something. All of this is actually just an argument stating the blessed state that we are. To reflect on it, up until now we've seen this. Since God chose you, verse 1, since God is at work with you, verse 2, since God caused you to be born again to a living hope, 3, since God is keeping your inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 4, since God is protecting you through faith, 5, since God is refining you by fire to receive his praise, glory, and honor, verses 6 and 7, since God is giving you inexpressible joy to love Christ, 8 and 9, since God Use the prophets for you, and angels are on their tiptoes looking into your salvation, 10 and 13. Well, now, what? With all of that built up, we get our first command. What do we do with it? And we are called to action, and our action is hope. We are to hope fully. This is the first command. Look down in verse 13, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. This is our command. Hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, wait, wait, Paul, this is, you said this is the first command, hopefully, but what about these other two kind of commands that come before it? Isn't this the third command? That the first thing we should do is prepare our minds for action. The second thing we should do is be, be sober minded. And then lastly, we should hope fully on the grace." We can kind of get that rendering in in, uh, our English translations. And even in the ESV, you kind of see that there's an existence of the first two before the actual command of the third. Um, Because the first two are just subordinate, like, participles. Um, But the imperative command, the verb action in the sentence, is this hope fully. That's the command. It's like these clauses exist, and then you now need to do this, which is hope fully. and, And I think that that's... Helpful for us with what we've just considered. Essentially, Peter's already saying, all of this argument's laid out. You have all of that. So having that, clearly you must have two things. You must prepare, you must have a mind prepared for action, and you must be sober-minded. Then, with those things in place, first command I give to you, fully hope on grace. It's interesting, this little uh, uh, phrase, prepared, um, As it says, preparing your minds for action, uh, literally translated, is having girded up the loins of your mind. I'm running that phrase in scripture for the idea of girding up your loins. Uh, It happens in in a couple different ways. Um, The physical representation, since we, if we're not familiar, I'm going to invite Colson come back on stage and show us. No, I'm just kidding. We just have a a slide. This is how they worked. This is how they. Uh, fought. This is how. Any time that they were prepared to do something, when action was set before them, they would gird up their physical loins to free their legs and untangle them from the looseness of their dress. And this is what this is what uh, Peter is saying of your mind: that you are to prepare, gird up your loins, and not only that, be sober. You're ready for action, and you have a single voice, a single mind. You're not. Unsober, in that you have multiple voices and multiple minds, and you're not in control of things. But no, you're in control. You have a sober mind. You have a mind for action. And with this, with this that is given to you, then set your hope fully on grace. Tom Constable in his uh, commentary summarized it like this, and I put it on the screen because I thought it was worth considering. Now that you have focused your thinking positively, you need to roll up your sleeves mentally and pull yourself together. I like that. I think that's a good English translation of this understanding. You need to roll up your sleeves mentally, pull yourself together, and adapt some attitudes that will affect your activities. Because again, Peter's pointing back towards this grace, and he is saying the only way to understand and to have the the right mentality of everything I've explained to you is to fully hope. In grace, To fully hope in God's salvation expressed to you through grace. And I think it is fascinating that the first call to action uh, isn't something physical. This is why when I said and intend to say every now and then when we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're doing what is easy. We're, we're changing our physical appearance and we are desperate for God to do what only he can do. Which is change our spiritual condition. Because what this is, this is a spiritual call. Now, you are to set your hope fully on God's grace. Not, it's not a physical, mental, physical representation. This is a mental reality. And so what does it look like to, for, the, for one's mind to be fully set on God's grace? Well, luckily, Peter continues. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here we run into our second command. All of this, and then our first command is to set our hope fully on grace. And then following that, once we do that, then we're apparently ready to do the second, which is to be holy. Holy. I think it is super fascinating that Peter presents it to us in this order, that it's not first, be holy, second, set your hope on grace. No, because what Peter's highlighting is what uh, dangers I have when I skip the first part. If we skipped over the first part of recognizing God's grace, then what we tend to do is legalize our own holiness. What I mean by that is when we forget that God's grace is something we don't deserve, that only He gives, and that only He has the power to accomplish, well, then we rightly understand how we can be holy. Because that's the key. Because truth be told, you, you, you can't be holy because you're sinful. We've come and crossed with, with our own demise through Adam. We have sin in our worlds. We have a broken relationship. We are no longer set apart from sin, holy before God, and we had nothing to do to get us to that state. Why would we ever think that we could do something to mark us as holy and make us presentable before God? It doesn't work. And this is why I think Peter starts with us setting our firm understanding on what God is doing, Because then we can rightly understand our participation in going alongside his work. So this is the, again, to recap, this is what it is. First, we set our minds on the grace that he is accomplishing in salvation. And thus we know that the same call for us to be holy is possible because he himself is calling us holy. He himself is providing for us. This is why Isaiah writes that our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to be holy except live out his work he is accomplishing in us. So holiness is not now at this point the list of do's and don'ts of I got to do this and I got to not do that so I can maintain my holiness before God. This is the grace of God as he says, no, let me, the only one who can accomplish this, accomplish this in you. So all what it is to be holy, what it is to be set apart for God, is to let God do the work that he has called you to be. Is allow him to work for you in holiness in a way that you would never be able to do without the Holy Spirit. And and again, I think it's it's so fascinating that he's linked these two pictures. It's almost as if, to borrow from Peter's illustration um, in the last uh, couple of verses, it's like he's saying, if you're gold that has been purified and now you stand pure as gold, why would you ever go back to living like you have impurities in your life? This is like the argument. If we see how great grace is in our lives, why would we ever go about trying to make holiness about ourselves attaining something? No, we need to keep those in the same boat, keep those both as the work of God in us and participate on what only he can do. I think that, that this is uh, linked together. I, I think I wrote it more, more like this. This is why I think they're linked. God is the only one to save us from death through grace. Thus, God is the only one to give us life found in holiness. Holiness is not a list of things to do. Holiness is the state of loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and loving your neighbors as yourself. And this is what he calls you to do. It's not that you have to, as we say so many times, the world will tell you, you need, it is by your behavior demonstrated that you attain your identity, right? It's by your status. It's by your work. It's by your wealth. It's by your popularity. It's by what you do that earns you a status, That stands on that. And in God's economy, it's completely backwards. He says, no, no, no. It isn't your behavior that earns your identity. It's my identity given in which then you can have participation through your behavior. God says you are holy and thus I will empower you to live as holy. And so why don't we choose that? Why is it in our own lives that we forget this insurpassable grace This call to holiness, this new identity found in him, and why do we go back to live like we're not holy? To live as something we aren't made to be anymore. Well, we've said it. Peter said it. It's because you and I were once ignorant. We were ignorant children, and we still have our flesh. This is why Peter says we should still be expectant for the future return, because even that will be taken away from us. But right now, we will have trials, and we'll have moments that we cause ourselves to mess up. It's because we're ignorant children. And I really think what Peter's doing is Peter's presenting a a discussion of value. And he's saying, what do you value? And he's presenting the value of this grace and this holiness and this new identity. And he's putting it so much higher than any other choice in our life that it would make sense that we would choose what is valuable. And I call this the nickel and dime. Um, This is me trading dimes for nickels, or me taking nickels instead of dimes. Um, And it hit me one time because uh, one of the things, when I'll get home and, you know, unload my jean pockets onto, you know, the bedside table um, or anything like that, and I pull out, let's say, all my change with my keys or whatever, and I set it on the table, Um, when Madeline first got her, her first piggy bank, um, from Grammy or from somebody that are given there, uh, she, she, was, she, all, she just wanted money. She wanted to put money in the piggy bank. That was the good thing. Um, and I remember one of the times I just had a pile of, uh, all I had was nickels and dimes that were on the table. And I just did the normal father thing, which is, yes, I'll give you something good, but I probably should be a good dad, so I'll limit you somehow. So you can take one. And so I told her, you can choose one. You can have that one thing. And so what did Madeline choose? Well, she picked up the nickel. So I started walking to her piggy bank with the nickel. And I stopped her and I was like, Madeline, why'd you choose the nickel? I'm just curious now, why, why not the dime? And she's like, well, daddy, the nickel's bigger. And you're like, of course i choose the nickel. Why would I choose that tiny thing when look how big this thing is? Years later, actually similar with Myla, something I, I had a bunch of change out and used the same thing. It was a bunch of pennies this time. And I said, you can have all of one type of coin because she was still trying to learn what type of coin. If you can tell me what the name is, you can have all of one that it is. She chose pennies. And it was because... I asked her, why did you choose pennies? She was like, well, there's six of them. So clearly there's more pennies because there's only two dimes and there's only one quarter. So I'm not going to choose two dimes or one quarter because there's six pennies. And it, she was young. She was just learning. And essentially they chose naturally where they were in ignorance. And I think this is, this is our same spiritual condition that we're being called to today. What are the things in our lives that we are choosing nickels over dimes? That we're acting like we're ignorant still were not revealed this great value of God's grace presented to us with the witness of the prophets worked out for you by the testimony of the Spirit of God himself and then one which that the angels look down and long to see. A salvation that is worked out to that then we may hope in grace and live as holy. And any choice other than doing that, is like we're just acknowledging. We're trading the valuable for the invaluable. And this was my conviction this week. And this is certainly um, would be a miss without the closing application as Colson's making his way back up here. Because um, I would love to say that. And good news. One of your pastors nailed it this week. Got it right. I just, I'm glad I get to share all this about holiness because I've relied on God's holiness in my life all week long. Um, but that's not the case. And that's what I hope I am inviting you to is because all week I've been um, doing a couple things. One, the first thing I invite you to is uh, to thank God for any speck or amount of holy living that you are blessed with because it is his great work he's accomplishing in you. And so if you can see those things, thank him and give him worship for them. Or then you may also be seeing probably more likely the all the other things of where I then trade my nickels for God's dimes that he has presented a holy and abundant life for me, and how often do I exchange that? Even as the point, to be honest in the confession, these are some of the ones I jotted down in my process this week. How many times times do I choose pride over selflessness? How many times do I choose laziness over God's true rest? How many times do I choose lust over love? How many times do I choose spite instead of forgiveness? I was reminded of Isaiah's words again, Um, when he says that the Lord declares his thoughts are higher than my thoughts, his ways are higher than my ways, and that was my prayer, and hopefully your prayer is, God, desperately do in me what only you can do, which is not me in my ignorance choosing my ways, but me in your grace that I've set my hope in. May I get to live out holy because you have called me holy, and you empower me to do it, and thus I experience dimes, not nickels, in the life of following him. But I do hope that whatever you do and however the Spirit leads you to respond in this time, take whatever posture you need. Um, We'll invite you to stand. But if you need to remain seated, that's fine. If you need to find somebody to pray with, come up front. Whatever it is and however you need to respond to the Spirit, uh, this is the time to do so.